On Veterans Day here in the United States, many schools are closed, government offices are shut, flags fly at half-mast. The day is intended to thank and honor all military personnel who served in all U.S. wars. And in the last hundred years, America has been involved in a lot of wars. Tens of thousands of brave men and women have died in battle. Many more thousands have returned home with wounds and many carry with them psychological scars. The decision to go to war, to put the lives of American warriors in harm's way is a momentous decision. It's a serious moral issue with far reaching implications. It has to appreciate and safeguard the irreplaceable lives of the soldiers sent into battle. So on Veterans Day, it's fitting that we should ask, what does it look like for our political leaders to respect the armed forces and veterans? I'm Ilan Jurno, and welcome to the New Ideal podcast. Joining me in a moment will be my colleague Ankar Gatte to discuss what we owe the real defenders of America. Yes, hi Ilan. Hi Ankar. I thought in terms of asking this question of what does it mean to, uh, you know, to take seriously the lives of the of soldiers in the battlefield, it'd be helpful to start with how we come to this issue, what perspective we bring. And I think, you know, we're informed by the philosophy of Ayn Rand, but what does that break down into? How, how do we, what are some of the key points you would name in terms of just the moral perspective? The most important, I think, is the Declaration of Independence, which sets out what the purpose of this new form of government created in, um, by, the, by the founding fathers, what its purpose is. And it was new. And what's new is what's in the Declaration of Independence, that every uh, person and every citizen has the rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And that certainly includes any soldiers going to war and that the government's responsibility and the reason government's created in the first place, if it's a proper or valid government, is to protect and secure the rights of each individual whose government it is. So the government now is not your ruler, but your representative or your agent. And this was a new conception of government, which led to all kinds of positive creations, positive effects. The, the U.S. went from an agricultural nation, really, or a collection of colonies, to the most powerful nation on the earth because of that. And it really has a very distinct and enormously impressive military and the orientation of the military because of this, because there's a whole new conception of what the purpose of government is. So, you know, one thing I, I, I you know, I, as you know, I, I work on foreign policy topics and I often give talks. And one of the things that often comes up when people hear, oh, I, I'm from the Ayn Rand Institute, is they, they assume certain things about what Ayn Rand's view would mean in foreign policy, what, it, what sort of the implications are. And it takes a lot of time to kind of reorient them to know that her view is very different from what you think it is. So some of the things I've heard or people assume is, well, she, she must be, show, people think of her as either a conservative or a libertarian, which she isn't either. But the consequences, they think, oh, well, you know, libertarians are, they're, they're isolationists and put that in scare quotes, or they believe in non-aggression, or some of them are pacifist. And is Ayn Rand's approach aligned with any of those, would you say? 
I don't think so, but you certainly should weigh in. As you say, you you speak a lot on this um, and and deal with audiences' questions often on this. No, all these are not proper. It is true that she was cautious about going to war. It should really be a last resort. You're putting the lives of soldiers at risk. It's a life and death issue. You don't enter into it lightly. And I think her view was, and it stems very much from her philosophy, that what a police force is, it's for the self-defense of the citizens. It's to go after criminal aggressors. So the military is also for the self-defense of its citizens. It's there to protect the rights and freedom of everyone in the nation, including the soldiers themselves. And you to do that means you will use force against the people who initiate the use of force against foreign aggressors. But if you maintain a capable military, the likelihood that someone is going to attack you in the first place significantly diminishes. So I think she often in Q and A's said things that it's she, she thinks we should be armed to the hilt. I think it's one of her phrases that she uses. And if you are, you will rarely need to use force because there won't be people uh, or countries across the globe who are willing to engage militarily with you because they know they will be destroyed. So it, she was adamant that we have a powerful military, but I think she thought if you really maintain that and maintain that we will defend ourselves, you won't have to use it that often. Yeah, I often told, I've used the image of if you think of the Wild West, it wasn't as wild as people think because it was slowly becoming more and more uh, under the rule of a uh, government. But if you think of the sheriff who's understood to be serious about enforcing the law, he carries a gun, but people he doesn't have to draw it because people take him seriously and it's understood that he's going to enforce the law objectively and, and firmly. And so the, the, there's no kind of room for people to push. Um, and I think it's a, it's really important to, in terms of thinking about when we move to the context of war, it is such a, a momentous decision. I don't know many others that are significant in terms of what how many lives they put in, in the balance. I just want to draw, sort of heighten the contrast a bit more because I think there's a kind of perspective that often you hear that you know, if you're for capitalism, then you're a warmonger because there's this view that capitalism is all it does is it conquers in order to create markets. And, and I think that is completely wrong. It's not at all a correct understanding of what capitalism is. And it's not at all Ayn Rand's view of what a capitalist society would be. And in fact, I think historically, it's, 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 the, it's the less free countries, the ones that are more statist, that are the ones that are more, they have more incentive to go to war and, and free societies have no incentive. They gain nothing from war. It's just the elimination of a negative. You're eliminating the threats you face uh, against your being able to live in, in freedom and peace. And I think it, it's rarely seen from this light, but capitalism and peace go together. They, they really reinforce each other because it's so much better for everybody to be able to trade and not have war and, and spend, sort of allocate money for things that are just being you know, you use bullets that nothing happens with them. They're not more productive. They just kind of bring you back to the state of being free if you're successful. Um, and I think the other point of contrast that I think is important, sometimes misunderstood, 
uh, Ayn Rand's perspective is seen in this light is there is a view in foreign policy that was really, it gained a lot of visibility during the George W. Bush administration. And this is, so, he was very strongly influenced by neoconservative foreign policy. And the manifestation of this was the Bush policy in the Middle East to bring democracy to, the, to that part of the world. And in some speeches, Bush even said that, you know, the vision of his approach is to eliminate evil from the world, to eliminate tyranny and everywhere without limits. And it, it, you know, sometimes this is characterized as being the world's policeman. And that again, is not at all the conception that is uh, uh, flowing out of Ayn Rand's view of a proper government. And I think not at all consistent with the founding of America and the principles of individual rights. I don't think that is what it in, entails. I, I think it's important to get that it's, it's the principle of self-defense, but put in the context of a nation and it's you know the right of all the people in that nation individually to be left free from foreign threats and foreign aggression and that that's really all that there is to it and there's no gain in going out and conquering countries it's not at all consistent with a, a free economy um and and one of the things you know recommend to people if you want to explore rand's distinctive view on this is to, to read her essay the roots of war which you can find on our website Einrand.org, and I'll have links uh, to this later on as, in the discussion. So, you know, that's some of the context for how we think about war and foreign policy and sort of the moral political issues here. Um, one thing I wanted to put on the table, because I think this is just so ingrained in the way people think about the military, military service, and particularly veterans and Veterans Day. And uh, it's this view that to serve in the military is inherently selfless. It, it's seen as, it's, it's bound up in the view, the sort of con contemporary view of morality that to do something like that is, it's good and therefore it's, it, it's seen as selfless and often people die and so it's seen as the ultimate sacrifice. And I, I was reading the, the website of the, the Veterans Administration and how they describe Veterans Day. And one of the things really left out at me is they describe it as, is quote, a celebration to honor Americans veterans for their patriotism, love of country, and, and this is the key part, and willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good, uh, unquote. And that just, I don't think that's at all what it means to have a view of serving in the military from, for rational reasons, I think. And I'm, I wanna get your perspective on this. So put it sort of, you know, if Ayn Rand's ethics is an ethics of egoism, of self-interest, how does that consist? How does that integrate with serving in the military on this conception? Yeah, that's a common way of describing military service, that it's sacrifice and it's sacrifice for the common good or for the nation. I think of that as an insult to the soldiers and to the people who have served throughout American history in the American military, that they swear an oath to uphold and defend the constitution. Their um, goal, I think the vast, vast majority of them is, I want to live in a free nation. I want my family, friends, the people I admire and respect to live in a free nation. That is what I'm trying to protect, to secure and to defend against aggressors. So it is about freedom. It's not about spreading freedom throughout the globe. It's about securing and protecting American freedom. 
that is so valuable that you will be willing to pay the price and a high price. So obviously military service is, um, the, there's the real risk of death, but it's not that they're going wanting to die and sacrifice for some cause that is beyond them and out like uh, in George W. Bush's serve a cause greater than yourself. It's the, the whole American conception of life and of the purpose of government is it's about the pursuit of your happiness and you need liberty in order to be able fully to pursue your happiness. And just as police officer is a risky business, but it's there, I think again, a police officer is not serving in the sense of sacrifice that it like, this doesn't do me any good, but I don't count and other people count. It's rather, he wants to live in a peaceful, free society and is willing to put in the effort. And, and we who benefit from it should have enormous gratitude for this, but not call it that it's, oh yeah, you're not interested in freedom. It doesn't mean anything to you selfishly. You don't value it, but somehow you value our freedom. And so you're sacrificing for that. No, it's they value genuine freedom for the country, including its inhabitants, including themselves. And that's a, a, a noble motive and it's an, an enormously um, noble career for those who have lived up to what the mili American military stands for. You know, I'm struck by, I, I, I'm old enough to remember the, the climate right after 9-11. And one of the things that happened is a lot of people enlisted. They, they wanted to do something to defend America. It was, it was understood, I think, widely. Not, not super, I don't think it was well, well understood, but there was a sense that we came under attack and we need to do something. And I think there, there was a real outpouring. And I think the better motive, sort of the best motivated people who did that were doing it because they wanted to preserve what they saw as the best of America and to be left free. Um, and I think that, that's it shows sort of a courage and the commitment to values, not I'm indifferent to what happens in America, but I'm going to go and die on a battlefield. I think that is not at all what it, it's about. And I, I agree with your assessment that it, it's, it's insulting to view it that way. Um, you know, the sort of the setup for this conversation is we're, we're reflecting on Veterans Day. And th there's just, to me, the critical issue is if, if this is what a conception of our government is and what, we're, what the military is there to do and protect, how have we have the political leaders who define our policy uh, approached it and, and you know, a lot of my work has been analyzing American foreign policy. And, and I, I would put it bluntly that it's been an ongoing disaster for most of the 20th century. Um, if you think about foreign policy, we have to put the word policy in scare quotes because it there, if you think of it as a, as a pattern of behavior or a set of decisions to guide you across time in different contexts, it's not, it, there isn't a coherence to it. It's, it's a mixture of some short-term you know, defensible goals, some things that are completely ad hoc and, and there's, there's no larger picture or purpose to them, and things that are outright self-sacrificial, the so-called humanitarian missions of which there have been numerous in the last couple of decades. And to me, it's, this is the this is part of what should be on people's mind on Veterans Day is to, is to reflect on 
how have we actually treated the men and women who are part of the armed services and who are sent into these dangerous conditions of the battle? Um, have we sent them into, into wars that they should be fighting? And I think in many cases, the answer is no, and, and that they're put in positions where they can't really do that. And the, the, the outcome is, is it's a double injustice. And we'll, we'll dig into this, but the double injustice I see is they, this is not really why a lot of people join the military to go and do things that are, don't serve the American interest. And then the second is when they're put in the, these dangerous positions, they're often prevented from doing what it would take to defend themselves and protect their own lives in combat. Uh, so I think there's there's a real tragedy in the story of America's foreign uh, international relations, foreign policy for the last numerous years uh, over time. Yes, I agree. I think since World War One, it's been the our foreign policy has been uh, bad, and it has. I I actually think it has betrayed the American soldiers and the American military, that it the, the military is so enormously capable, efficacious. When we enter World War I, World War II, it changes the whole tide of the war, but it was unclear what the purpose in either of them was. And I think another, as a kind of preparatory comment about the, the enormous value and greatness of the American military. The fact that you have the most powerful military on the earth, certainly into the 20th century, and it's not used against its own country, that it's that the, the whole conception of it, that it's under civilian control and it's there to do um, the, to, to execute the laws and what Congress and the president order it to do, and it doesn't become an army of conquest. It doesn't become an army of subjecting its own people that like they really take seriously. What they're about is protecting American freedom. And it's the responsibility then of the Congress and the president and we as voters who appoint these representatives to make sure that the foreign policy that is animating them is not going to put this, the military and the soldiers in needless um, risky, harmful situations and wars we should not be in, in um, and conflicts that we should not be in. I think once you brought up the draft, Ayn Rand was adamant about the draft is a tremendous injustice. It's a violation of an individual's rights. We should have a volunteer army. You brought up 9-11 that when we were attacked and we were attacked on American soil, um, the heart of our financial capacity in, in New York City, the heart of our government and military with the Pentagon, we were attacked and you will get Americans then volunteering to we want to defend and protect our freedom. For wars that we shouldn't be in, it's hard to get people to volunteer. And that is evidence that we should not be in them, that citizens in the country don't think of it as this is a war to protect our freedom. This is a war of self-defense. And so they don't volunteer. I think in, in what I've read from World War I, before they had the draft for World War I, it was, we're trying to get volunteers. And it was under 100,000. 
that they got it. And it was, it was unclear why, why the US has to enter this war, what we're accomplishing, why we're under threat and why our freedom is under threat. And that, that's a failure of our, um, not of our military, it's a failure of our civilian leaders who are our representatives and it's our responsibility to know how they think about foreign policy and if they're thinking properly about it, that it's only about protecting American freedom. Yeah, I think that point about the draft is really significant because to me, it should be that that's a kind of referendum on the policy. If people aren't willing to, mar to join and fight and freely, then there's something deeply, deeply wrong. Either you haven't convinced them that there's a legitimate threat that needs to be tackled, uh, or you know, so if you can't convince them of that, then there's no reason for them to fight. And I think that, or, or maybe there isn't a legitimate uh, issue and you can't convince them. So that to me should be, it's a kind of, um, it's almost like a, a safety check on what the kind of policy that you can pursue. And in fact, the, I think the, the, the existence of a draft creates, I mean, first of all, it's a, it's a profound evil, as you mentioned, but it also creates the kind of possibility for policy that is really irrational. Because the question then is, well, we don't have to worry about how many people are willing to fight. We just force them into it and push them onto the battlefield regardless of whether they want to be there, you know, regardless of whether we can defend doing so in the first place. And you see that, so if you think about, you mentioned that, you know, one of the good things about American military is it's never been used against its own people. If you think about authoritarian regimes and, and dictatorships where that is what the military is often used to do, those are also uh, regimes that go to war using dra drafted, uh, con conscripted soldiers that are just completely irrational. You know, the Gulf War of, of 1990, 91, uh, where Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. I mean, it was a war of conquest. You wanted to get Kuwait's oil and you, you couldn't defend that in a free country. You couldn't say to your people, well, we're gonna go and basically loot the, the country next door and, and steal its riches and you know, come enlist. It's, you, you're only able to do that kind of thing when you have people who are essentially uh, uh, conscripted or enslaved into the military in many cases. And so it, it's, it's a wonderful thing that the draft's gone away in that respect because it, it limits the, the irrationality of what policy you can follow. But it's not a, it's not a fail safe. It's, I mean, there's still things that we've done. And maybe we should talk a bit about some concrete examples of what American uh, quote policy or, or this incoherent mess that we can point to and, and discuss. So you mentioned World War I. Uh, what about World War II? What do you think of that? What was Ayn Rand's perspective? Ayn Rand's perspective was very interesting on World War II. So, and it's really World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and she died early 80s. So this is what she saw of major American conflicts. And she thought in all of them, there was not an issue about American freedom and self-defense that it and are that are the foreign policy at the time was at best wrong, often incoherent. I think when you get to say Vietnam, it's just incoherent. The I mean, you brought up Bush in the Middle East. I mean, World War One was to make it the, the world safe for democracy as well. This kind of and it it was a debacle. I think World War Two is the most plausible that it's a war 
of self-defense and particularly once Pearl Harbor happens that we've been attacked, that it's a war of self-defense. But her wider perspective on it was that we were being maneuvered into war, that we should arm. So we should have armed ourselves, but told basically the rest of the world that if you leave our interests alone, we we were not going and try to protect freedom everywhere. So individual citizens could send money to Britain or to France and so on, but the Europeans got themselves into World War II. And I think this too, if you get her wider philosophical perspective, World War II was them calling us to bail them out. And why did they need bailing out? Because there was a long history of appeasement of Germany after World War I, of um, them, I mean, if you think of, of Chamberlain and he's appeasing and gives Czechoslovakia um, and it's somehow this will satisfy Hitler and it won't happen. So it was incredibly bad policy. And then it's, oh, can you bail us out when we've screwed everything up and now we're worried about Hitler taking France and then taking England and so and that is that's not a war of self-defense there may have been art and there were some arguments certainly that look longer term Hitler would be a threat to us or to Japanese so there is arguments like that but you really needed to argue it not it's our responsibility to protect freedom around the world and to be the policeman around the world so even World War II she thought if our foreign policy was better than what it was we could have stayed out of the war and watched. I mean, she one of her views was allow Germany and Russia to destroy themselves. They're two savage regimes and it's there's not one better than the other and that we allied with Russia and versus Germany and then watched so much of the globe fall under communism. I, she thought that was a direct result of World War II. Yeah, so the the alliance with with the Soviets is really interesting. It, it goes to this issue of even if you could defend. So let's say that you thought there was a threat and that Hitler was growing power. Um, you have to think seriously about who it is that you treat as an ally and what does that really look like. And, and I don't. I'm not convinced that allying with the Soviets was a good idea. And in fact, I think the the handling of the, the relationship between the U.S. and the Soviets post-war was a disaster as well, because I think it it became a, a policy of appeasement that enabled the, the Soviet regime to stay in power longer than I think it would have otherwise. So I think it's another case in which uh, an irrational policy created worse problems down the road, because then we had um, so this idea that we have to stop communism everywhere, but, but it wasn't even coherent on its own terms, because, well, you know, I, I think Ayn Rand made this point in her essay on the lessons of Vietnam, you know, the, the Soviets are taking over Europe in various countries, they're marching in with tanks. That's not a priority, but going to the jungles of Vietnam, that's a priority so that the Vietnamese can convert themselves into some sort of authoritarian. How does that make sense? And I think there was a real, I think it's a profound criticism she has of Vietnam as a war. So it's kind of, if you think about it as the key, one of the major things that happens in the so-called Cold War, it was, there was no clear purpose to it for America's involvement in Vietnam. You could make a case for it, but I don't think the case was really made. And in fact, in practice, as it was, it was a 
uh, a war that was selfless. It was, there was no clear American purpose, no rational justification for being there. And it was fought in a way that we now have this term, no win war, uh, because it was not possible. It, the way the military was guided, they weren't in a position to fight to win either. So they were in this, they can't lose because that would be bad and they can't, they're not allowed to win. And yet these are the men and women whose lives have been interrupted. Many of them drafted into this. And this is how you treat them. Like, think about what, what, what their lives, you know, all their dreams are in, in, on pause if, and their, their families are back home and they're put in the line of fire for no moral reason, for actually for an irrational, for a self-destructive reason. Yeah, I think that's a difference in between Vietnam and World War II and why Vietnam really was a low point in our foreign policy, because World War II, you can question whether we needed to enter into World War II. Was it really American self-defense and freedom required? But certainly after Pearl Harbor, yes. But, but were we maneuvered into um, that? But once we were in the war, there's not this, from what I've read, I'm not a military historian, but from what I've read, there's not this um, putting a leash on our military that you can't do everything that's necessary to defend yourselves and to win. It was all out war. Whereas in Vietnam, both the goal was unclear and then what the military was allowed to do or not. You put it, it's a no-win war. Like it's, yeah, fight, but not decisively and not completely decimate the enemy. Um, and that's a crime to put I mean, it's a double crime that it's the goal's not right. And then you're in a life and death situation and you're not giving them the ability to defend themselves to their utmost capability. Um, and that, that Vietnam was such a depressing time in the US. And this is not to say the anti-Vietnam protesters were right. M many of them I think were, were, had really bad motivations, bad ideology. But you could not defend the war and you could not defend how it was being fight, fought. And it was too much like we're sacrificing our soldiers' lives for nothing. And that you, that's such a crime to do that. Yeah, I mean, the, I was looking at the data for Vietnam. There were almost 9 million forces deployed during the war. Uh, and of those, uh, if you count up all the deaths, both on, in, in theater, non-theater, battle deaths, have you count them? It's upwards of 90,000 individuals. And one of the things that you get from Ayn Rand's perspective on this, when she, she writes about the lessons of Vietnam, she makes, actually, this isn't another essay, but um, she compares the fact that there were, you know, for, for the, water, the, the, um, the Watergate uh, scandal uh, that happened, there were lots of hearings about that. And, and understandably, people want to understand what happens and so forth. But they, they wanted to get all the details. And, but when the question is put, why are we in Vietnam? No one can really explain it. There's no rational argument. It's shifting all the time. And there's nothing like the same kind of soul searching about why are 90,000 Americans dead now as a result of this policy? 
nothing like the same kind of investment in trying to understand it and, and then change paths, right? Because what you'd want to get out of any kind of hearing is, okay, we made a mistake. Well, here are the things we did wrong. Let's, let's not do this again. I don't think that there was any kind of serious attempt to draw a sort of a, a self-critical analysis of what happened after Vietnam. And in fact, what does happen is this, what, what's often called the Vietnam syndrome, which is, you know, it was seen as an American failure that Vietnam fell, even after the American troops were gone. And it, it made it seem like the use of the military is inherently ineffectual. So the, the, the blame was put on, sort of laid at the foot of the military, which I think is really unfair because it was not, the military doesn't set policy or direction, they, they follow orders. So it was a policy failure at the deepest level. And yet it's, it's the, 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 what happens is the, the military is seen as, well, we can't use military to solve problems. And that, that lingers for, for decades and it kind of creates a problem because when you do face a threat, people are then, um, reluctant for the wrong reasons to think about how best to respond to it. Um, so I think that was one of the one of the damaging legacies of, of um, Vietnam. I and I think part of her view, just a short point, part of her view of why there wasn't this kind of congressional political investigation of what's gone wrong with our foreign policy after Vietnam is that it's a longer trajectory. And she viewed it as it's the progressives, liberals who get us into war. It's um, Woodrow Wilson, World War One, FDR, World War Two, And she thinks an investigation would be it's the Kennedy administration that first got us into Vietnam. And these are the beloved presidents. Wilson might not be so much now, but beloved presidents of the liberal progressive. And it, the investigation would be, look, you, your whole um, way of approaching foreign policy is wrong. And th that's what should have happened. But you can see why, if, if you get how, um, how dominant they were politically and in terms of the media and so on, that that investigation didn't happen, though it should have. So I want to take another kind of, another couple of examples to think of through what, you know, how has our foreign policy unfolded in the last uh, few decades? And what has that meant for the people, the veterans who's, who today is the day we think of and sort of mem memorialize and, and honor and thank them. And the, a couple more examples that really leap out at me are um, the, the two wars that I, I've studied the most, which is uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So both of which flow out of uh, sort of the American response to 9-11. Um, and there's a lot that we've put out from the Institute over the years in, in analyzing these. Uh, and, and one of the things I would say is it's both of these are disasters and they're, they're policy disasters and not military disasters. Again, it's, it's the same kind of pattern we saw with Vietnam. There was uh, an irrational justification or, or attempt to justify these wars and both in execution on the, on the ground, the military was constrained in what it could do. Um, if you think about the, I think they, so it, these wars could have had a justification. I think they, you know, initially with Afghanistan, it was right to go after the Taliban and the, the Al-Qaeda forces. I think that was a, a legitimate goal. 
But that's not really what the war ended up being. That, uh, that we failed to capture all the people, let them flee uh, into Pakistan. And, and obviously Osama bin Laden was able to flee and hide for almost a decade. But what happened soon after the Taliban were, were brought down is that the mission changed from anything resembling defeating an, a threat or uh, punishing or kind of going after um, the, the accomplices of the 9-11 uh, attacks. It became a nation building effort. And the military, which is not a job the military is either designed for or should be doing morally. And, and the result of this is that the, the way the military were allowed to conduct themselves in Afghanistan was exactly similar to what you described in Vietnam is you can fight, but you can't fight decisively. And make sure don't shoot these targets because they're cultural sites. Don't shoot at mosques, even if you're being sniped from them. Um, you know, make sure that when you enter the house, you respect the local customs and don't tread on anyone's toes and win hearts and minds. And all of which are really conflicting instructions when you're sent there with, with, a, with weapons and, and armor and so on to go and kill people who are trying to harm you and harm America. It's, it's sort of being put into, into reverse and forward at the same time. It's really uh, an impossible situation and the the one of the things that came out recently so we've been talking about this since the beginning of the afghanistan war uh, we've been arguing this point but in uh, 2019 there was what was come to be called the afghanistan papers which is hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, of interviews and research done by the, the government itself talking to people involved in, a, in, in the war and the running of it in the rebuilding and the nation building. And it's basically confirmation that there was no real strategy for this nation building. And there was no sort of realistic view of what it would take. And uh, in effect, it became very quickly became an, a, a no win war, an unwinnable war uh, with no way to extricate American America from it. In fact, the war is still ongoing. I mean, there's been no end to it. We're, we're in peace negotiations with the Taliban right now, which is ludicrous. Um, but it, for anyone interested in what actually happened in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan papers are documented in the Washington Post. There's a number of articles drawn on, drawing on it. I think the most heartbreaking element of it is when they talk to veterans of the war and they ask them, what was your experience like? And their experience was, it didn't make any sense to me. It was heartbreaking. I saw my friends being killed. I couldn't do anything about it. Um, we were training Afghan soldiers and Afghan policemen. And then the next day they would turn the guns and put a bullet in our heads. And there was just real chaos. Um, and to me, this is a, a one more illustration of how when you have an irrational foreign policy, it, it leads you into this kind of um, unwinnable situation and the, the, the people who suffer first, not only, but first, are the people sent in as American service, uh, servicemen and women into those conditions and trying to, to accomplish goals that are not accomplishable. Yeah, and it's, a, it's so tragic in this case because people did sign up to fight for American freedom and self-defense. And as you said, after 9-11, people were going to sign up for the military. And there was a real pause 
for military action. But it was it would have been military action to defeat the enemy. And that included, as you said, Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And it would include, crucially, not Iraq, but um, Iran. It would have included the whole fountainhead of this Islamic totalitarian movement that views the US as an enemy that has to be obliterated. And if we had directed our military towards Iran, you know, I mean, we could have won just as, um, uh, as we the, the battled when they were allowed to fight in Afghanistan or Iraq. And the, you could have ended the threat versus it just being morphing into different threats. As you said, in, in Afghanistan, people were allowed uh, to flee and to come and fight back, fight another day to regroup and, and um, similar things happened in Iraq. There was a real cause for self-defense and we had rightly soldiers thinking that this is, we've been attacked, we need to defend ourselves. And then to do it that, in, in, as you put it, that it, the Afghanistan morphed into nation building. So is it's such a betrayal of what it is, why they signed up and what it is that they were ready to risk their lives for. And in this case, it, in Vietnam, I think you can argue, we just should not have been there. Here, there's a real case. Yes, we should have been at war, but not in, with these targets and in this way. And that it's, you can't do that to people who are signing up to defend your and the nation's freedom. I just want to underscore a point that I think it, it, it can't be overstated, which is the, the way to think about Afghanistan in particular, and also Iraq, and I think some of these other conflicts that we've talked about, when people think of them as it was a military failure, we haven't gotten out, we haven't won, there's no way out. It's to think about the policy and recognize that it was a policy failure. And one way to, to kind of really see this vividly is, I mean, there's two aspects here. One is the, the enemy in Afghanistan was so much weaker militarily, both in, in number of, of men, arms, weapons, the sophistication of their, there's no comparison. Amer American forces are just so much more better equipped, better trained. Uh, uh, so on all those axes, there's no question that there was something other than just the military balance of power that was relevant in terms of why we haven't succeeded more than we have. And I think it, the answer to that is it's a policy failure. But then if you think we, we've been in Afghanistan now since 2001, uh, almost it's going to be 20 years uh, next year. And the military hasn't made the progress people have expected it for reasons of, of sort of being held back by policy. But then compare that with one really well-known military operation. And that's the one that's dramatized in the movie Zero Dark Thirty. So this is the operation to go in to the compound in Pakistan where Osama bin Laden was hiding. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's, it, the movie makes it super tense and dramatic. And I'm sure that's understating what actually happened from the accounts of people who were there. So this is an operation where I think a SEAL team goes in under the radar. Doesn't, nobody, nobody lets Pakistan a notional ally. Nothing is said to Pakistan because we don't trust them, even though they're supposedly an ally. They fly in under cover of dark. They, they enter the compound. They're able to 
uh, eliminate Osama bin Laden and escape and not lose a single American uh, uh, from the team. And this is done in, you know, record, an amazingly compressed period of time under great strain. And when you just to see that, even just to read the newspaper accounts or read the book of uh, the books that have been written about this, you get a sense for just this is what the military is capable of doing when it's allowed to do its job. It, these are the best people on earth are doing this kind of thing. The, the, and this is what they're trained to do. This is the kind of thing where you use your military to its utmost. And what, so it's, it's a wonderful illustration of what the military is capable of when it's allowed to do its job. Now imagine if we had gone after the right target, as you mentioned, Iran, and, and even Afghanistan had really dealt with that problem properly. Um, there's no question in my mind the military is capable of succeeding in that context. And I think it's, it's, it's you know, layers upon layers of, of betrayal and tragedy that they weren't allowed to do what they're good at and succeed. And to me, this is when you think about honoring veterans, it's to appreciate all the work that goes into becoming that good at your job and, and for the right reasons being in that job. And then the, sort of the injustice of not being allowed to do what you've been sent to do. Uh, and then being put in uh, at risk at the same time and, and really uh, inhibited from uh, doing the most that you can. So we've got a few questions. Uh, maybe we should turn to that. I think we're kind of coming up on time. So let me put, um, thank you. Uh, we've received a number of donations from the super chat. We appreciate that. Let me take one of the questions in the super chat. Um, so this brings us to a very contemporary uh, example of a policy, American foreign policy. The question is, what do you think of Donald Trump's approach towards dealing with uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea? And I think if I can just flesh out for people who haven't followed this, it's um, Donald Trump's approach has been to try to befriend North Korea. He went there, he met with the leader. There was a lot of photo ops. So, uh, and for people who aren't aware, North Korea is one of the worst totalitarian regimes on the face of the planet. It is a, a slave country. You can't leave the country safely. Um, all aspects of your life are tightly controlled. Um, so what do I think of this approach? I, I mean, in a word, I think it, it is um, rank appeasement. And it's, it's, it, it, there's no hope that this will achieve anything good. And, and in fact, it's a betrayal, uh, not only of the American interest in, in not engaging and elevating this country and treating it as if it, it is a moral civilized country. I think that that's one betrayal. The other betrayal, the other betrayal is to the people who live in that country and who are the victims of the regime and who, who are seeing America's leader in, in effect endorse their, their oppressor, their dictator. Uh, so to me, it is a, uh, a really irrational approach to dealing with this problem. I'd say the, we talked about that it, it's not the US government's responsibility to spread freedom around the world. That is to go militarily and say, liberate North Korea. But it is our moral responsibility to be on the side of people who actually value freedom. And even if it's, it's not a full conception and understanding of freedom, 
but are, who are more on the side of freedom and trade than they are on uh, dictatorship and conquest. And that means that you have to express significant moral disapproval of dictatorships, of tyrants and so on. It, this should be for North Korea, that it, it's not that we hate the North Korean people. They've been subjected and are slaves. They're in a slave uh, totalitarian society. But the leadership is, is just abysmally evil. The same, I think, in, in regard to China. What we should be trying to do is separate the Chinese from their government, that we value the Chinese people, or the enormous amount of trade that we engage in with China is great. We feel bad for them that they're under a totalitarian government that, that deprives them of so much of their freedom. Or same in Hong Kong, we should be with, on the side of the people in Hong Kong against the government that is, that is continuously now doing China's bidding. And that's the moral responsibility, I think, of American leadership. Not that we have to go militarily into all these places, but morally we have to be on the right side. And that means the side of freedom. And Trump in regard to North Korea is the exact reverse of that. It was, oh yeah, I mean, we're best friends almost or lovers almost was. And that, that's, I mean, that's unspeakably evil, I think. So uh, a couple more questions have come in. Let's uh, try to get them in. Uh, one question is about, uh, I guess this is more about a military approach. So a quote from General Patton's line from 1944. Um, I'm gonna quote, there's no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country, thoughts. Uh, I don't, I don't want to challenge that. That seems like his experience and he's a, a well-seasoned military leader. Um, if the question is, is this a way to define uh, success in war and victory, then, or, or, or let me just turn it into that question because that, that's something that I think is going on in the background. I think in thinking about this, what you're trying to do in a war of self-defense is eliminate the threat and neutralize it. So it's not, and kind of put it to bed so that it's not gonna come after you. And that means making the, the opponent or the enemy you're fighting give up its cause and stop fighting, put down its arms. And that, it depends on the kind of enemy you're facing, but you have to use all necessary force to do that. Uh, and and when you know you've succeeded when the enemy is really crushed psychologically spiritually and, and materially. I don't think you can simply uh, break the enemy's uh, material strength and leave it thinking, oh yeah, we can still fight. Let's just take a pause and rearm. That, that's not, I think, a way to think about victory. You need to break its spirit and its, its view that its goal is achievable. And that includes eliminating its ability to act on that goal. Um, do you have anything to add on that? No, I think that's good. I, I... Important point. Um, let me see. I, there's a long question here. I, I'm having trouble sort of condensing it. Um, let me see if I can pull an aspect of it out. It seems to be a question about uh, thinking about threats long term and, and sort of predicting what the relationships are going to be 
Um, and are we guessing about the future when we think about foreign policy? I think that uh, that's sort of what's going on. If you if that isn't, you, please retype your question. Um, but it's easier for us if the questions are shorter. So just a, a tip. Um, let me say one thought on that. Um, part of what it means to have a, a, a sound or rational foreign policy is to be guided by principles. And a principle is a, is a generalization that helps you understand the world and to guide your actions. Uh, and, and that includes evaluating other regimes and other countries and constantly evaluating them because they, they can change over time and they, and they do. Uh, and, and also appreciating that when a country says you are the great Satan, or it says we're going to destroy you in, a, in a, an ocean of fire and blood, you have to take those kinds of things seriously and not just laugh them off. You, ha you have to look at what is motivating this country or that country. Is it real, really an ally? And that's a, a sort of integrated approach. You have to keep getting data and fitting it together into an assessment according to your sort of best judgment of the relevant principles. And it's not prediction and kind of guessing. It's what do we know from the past about people who've acted this way? What do we know about the ideas animating them? What can we say about the, the trajectory here? And I think those are all relevant in thinking about um, how to evaluate who's a friend, who's an ally, who's an enemy. And there's a whole range of things in between that you, you have to be able to, to sort out. Um, so Ankar, you raised the, the issue of Iran as that should have been the, the problem. And I think our relationship with Iran is a, is a good illustration of not thinking in terms of principles, in terms of not thinking long range and not putting together the pieces of, of, of evidence into a coherent picture of what is the nature of this regime and what threat it poses. Uh, I've written about this, we, we, you can um, find out more our perspective on Iran and why we think it, it is a significant threat and has been for a long time. But the, the sort of a capsule summary of it is for many years, Iran has engaged in acts of aggression, starting, I think, famously in 1979 by taking the American embassy, uh, storming it and taking hostage the diplomats there and holding them captives for upwards of a year. And then there was a, a further attacks throughout the Middle East subsequent to that, because the way America responded to it was through an appeasing deal. And that, I think, encouraged further attacks, both directly and indirectly by uh, allies of Iran and proxies of Iran. And so for the years since then, there's been a, an ongoing and sometimes escalating series of attacks engineered and, and, and uh, enabled by Iran that you, the, the way to properly understand is it's an ongoing war that they're waging against us, but we don't treat it that way. We don't recognize it. We haven't seen how the dots connect. And that's why one, and if you fail to do that, you can think, well, all that's, separating us from having a good relationship with Iran is a nuclear deal, which was the view of the Obama administration. And that is just an incredibly narrow, myopic, and short-range short perspective on what has been the, the path of the relationship between Iran and the United States, which is one of hostility from Iran and uh, sort of eyes shut from the United States, kind of um, ignoring the, the, the full character of what we're facing and that it's inherently an ideologically driven regime that we, we should understand and recognize the significance of. 
So to me, that's it, it's really important that a, a rational foreign policy be one that's guided by the evidence and integrates the evidence into a rational evaluation, an ongoing assessment of the threats and, and uh, possibilities that we face, and, and form judgments of other regimes as we do that. As we do that. There was one other aspect of the question, which is, I think, directly related to what you just brought up, the last aspect about Iran. So the last part of the question was, we're not immune from making bad policy. Should we be constrained by bad policy in our past from doing what is needed now? To that, I think the answer is definitely no. And the Iran is a good example of this. So I don't think if we had a proper foreign policy in regard to Iran and the Middle East, that 9-11 would have happened. So the seizure of the embassy, which you brought up, was an act of war. It should have been treated as an act of war. If the threat had been dealt with then, I don't think 9-11 would have happened. Um, because as you said, there was it's a long and depressing history of appeasement of Iran, which emboldened then. But when 9-11 happens, even if you have a perspective it shouldn't have happened, it's not that can't then condition your response that, oh, well, this shouldn't have happened, so now we're not going to strike back. You have to strike back, and you have to strike back in, in force and with great deliberation to the right targets, which we did not do after 9-11. But it can't be that just because it's true, which, I, as I say, I think it is, that we should not have been in the position of 9-11, that that somehow handcuffs you, allow that to handcuff you. You can't allow it to handcuff. Maybe we'll make this the last question um, uh, in the Zoom chat. Can you comment on objectivism's role in ending the draft? I, I know a sort of sketchy version of this, and maybe you can fill in uh, if you know more on Carr. So my understanding is that one of the individuals who was connected to the Nixon administration, Martin Anderson, really pushed the case for ending the draft, and, and he had influence over Nixon in doing so, and that Martin Anderson was associated with Ayn Rand. He, I think he published an article in one of the magazines or journals that she was uh, editing at the time. And I think he was, I think he was influenced by objectivism. I don't know sort of his, how he would view it. Um, and what I think is significant is that Rand's view of the draft was not, not only that it was impractical, which it was, it was fundamentally immoral. And I think that was part of what gave force to those kinds of arguments. Um, th that's my understanding of what happened. Uh, does that jive with your knowledge, Ankar? Yes, she, she gave her a Ford Hall forum talk in 1967, the wreckage of the consensus, which has a lengthy critique of the draft. And, and as you said, stressing that it's immoral, it's in contradiction to the founding ideals of America. So it's profoundly immoral. Um, Anderson was one of the people, Alan Greenspan, who also at that time was in Ayn Rand's orbit, writing a bit for her publications, knowledgeable about some of her philosophy, I think in the end it didn't stick, but at the time, not, and he was on a commission that was looking into the draft as well. There's a, a, a brief discussion of this, I believe it's in a fit, footnote of, Companion to Ayn Rand, which is edited by 
uh, Alan Gotthelf and Greg Salmieri. There's some discussion of a argument against the draft and then a footnote about there's some evidence that it had an impact on the Nixon administration. Ayn Rand wasn't the only person arguing that the draft should be abolished. So I don't want to blow it like she was the one person who, who swayed it for Nixon. But there's reason to think her argument had some impact. Yeah, and it's, it's relevant to, to say as well that at the time, some of the opposition to the draft, I think, was disreputable. It was sort of a hostility to the government and the idea that um, sort of a, an emotional reaction to it rather than a moral case, which I think was part of what makes her distinctive. Um, so let's, uh, let's wrap up. Thanks, Ankar. I'm going to share some resources on the screen for people. We mentioned some of these. Uh, here are, um, if you're interested to learn more, go to the Ayn Rand lexicon, which is an A to Z mini encyclopedia of Ayn Rand statements on a lot of issues. Uh, so she has comments on war. You can read her essay, The Roots of War on our website, which the link is on the screen. And also the, the, um, the talk that Ankar just described, The Wreckage of the Consensus is published as an essay in Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, I believe, and you can read it and listen to it on our website. Finally, uh, take a look at the lessons of Vietnam, which we discussed a number of times in our conversation today, which you can find in the book, The Voice of Reason. I want to mention as well that the Institute has, uh, and these are the books you can, uh, I also recommend pick up Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which includes some of those essays. And then to get sort of a deeper perspective on Rand's moral view, her own statement of it, take a look at the virtue of selfishness. Uh, I mentioned as well, the Institute's been commenting on these issues uh, at length for a number of years since 9-11, we've been really active. And here, there's a number of books uh, that we put out, Winning the Unwinnable War, a collection of essays from uh, the Institute, Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, a book that Ankar and I put together. And then I have a book focused on the Middle East and specifically the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and America's approach to that, which I think um, brings out some of the distinctive objectivist approach to these sorts of issues. If you have thoughts or questions or feedback you'd like to share, if you have suggestions for topics, we uh, can be reached by email, newideal at einrand.org. And I'll just say thanks to all of you for being with us today on Veterans Day. And I hope you'll take a moment to think more deeply about this issue and reflect on the value of the US military and the importance of treating our veterans and our soldiers in active combat uh, with the respect and, and, and the value that they are, they represent, and that um, today is a day for reflecting on that. So thank you all. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member go to einran.org forward slash membership.